Romans chapter 8 in your Bibles if you have one. If not, the text will be up on the screens to my sides and you can follow along there. This is our passage for this morning's sermon. Starting in verse 31, the end of Romans 8. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us here. We pray, Lord, to understand more of your love for us and the security and safety we have in your salvation. Help us, Lord, to hear. Help us to see. Help us once again to stand in awe of your great grace for us sinners. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have a number of sayings in the English language for getting at the innermost part of something. A mythical novel may speak of the group going into the belly of the beast at its most dangerous moment. In religious terms, one might speak of you know, an inner sanctum, or even in our Bibles, the holy of holies. In monarchial terms, there's the crown jewel. Yes, there are the crown jewels, but there's the crown jewel, which is the jewel of the jewels. And in musical terms, there is the crescendo, like a high point in a great symphony. Well, take your pick on your preferred metaphor, but I'd suggest that the paragraph I read from the end of Romans 8 is something along those lines within the whole Bible. That's not to say that other parts of Scripture are any less Scripture than Romans, or Romans 8. Every bit of the Bible, of course, is inspired, uh, is breathed out by God. It is indeed God's word. But some parts, and we know this from our own experience, some parts are especially poignant, pointed, powerful, and power-packed. And the book of Romans has been widely recognized for its poignancy and its pointedness and its precision and clarity. It's surely the Apostle Paul's magnum opus among his many letters to churches and Christians. Martin Luther said of Romans 
It is the chief part of the New Testament, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Samuel Coleridge, the English poet, believed Romans to be the most profound work in existence. And others have just called it the Mount Everest among the other books of the Bible. As for chapter 8, that stands out as well. John Piper says, There is no chapter with a more sustained litany of privileges, securities, and assurances. He says, It is the greatest chapter of the Bible. Piper likes to call it the Great Eight. And Robert Bruce, no, not Robert the Bruce of Braveheart fame, not him, Robert Bruce, a 17th century Scottish minister of no small importance himself, in his dying days he called for a Bible at the family's breakfast. And he asked his daughter to read the 8th of Romans, he said. And he mouthed the words along with his daughter when she got to this. I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He then said, God be with you, my children. I've had breakfast with you, and I will sup with my Lord this evening. He then put his hand on the page of Romans 8, and he said, I die believing this. Well, that's my hope for us this Easter Sunday, that we would be eternally affected by the truth found in Romans 8, and especially its crescendo or its crown jewel at the end. So let's get after it. Notice how it begins, verse 31, with a question. What shall we say to these things? What things? Well, things that came before. How much before? Well, that's debated. Some see it as just the few verses before, what is often called the golden chain of salvation, which reaches into eternity past and into eternity future. Others would suggest that the these things that Paul is asking about in verse 31 refer to the whole of Romans 8. And still others would say, no, he goes back to chapter 5 or even to chapter 3 or, or perhaps even to the whole book that came before. But regardless of how much text he had in mind when he asked, what shall we say to these things, the content or the subject matter is the same in all of those options. Paul has been at length unpacking the gospel, salvation, God's redeeming work in Jesus. He's showing us how God saves and how we receive it and where it began and where it leads and, and what it implies. So what shall we say to these things, the gospel things? What's our response? What should our attitude be to all of this if we believe it? Well, he's going to answer that question with a series of additional questions, rhetorical questions. The answer is meant to be so obvious he need not say it. And notice what he's doing with that form of writing. He's not giving it to us in thesis form, though he's done that plenty in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a thesis, you could say. And he could be writing like that still at the end, but he's not. 
He's engaging with questions. He wants it to be somewhat interactive, at least in our minds. It's meant to move us. This is meant to be a pep talk. This is locker room kind of stuff. He wants it to not only be true of us, but for us to feel that it's true for us and feel it deep within. He wants us to know and believe and feel something about guilt and hardships. There are two halves to the passage I read, and each deals with one of those. The first half offers questions about guilt, and the second half begins with a question about hardships. So first, questions about guilt consider God's saving work in Christ. With questions about guilt, we should consider God's saving work in Christ. Now let me show you why this section is about guilt. Verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And verse 34, who is there to condemn? This is courtroom language. Picture a kind of cosmic end times courtroom with God. Could anyone bring charges against you? Would anyone be on the docket as evidence or witness for actions you've done that would condemn you before God? And of course, Paul's answer here is no. The the unspoken answer to his rhetorical question is no. No, nothing's against us. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. No one is there to condemn. But, but let's not rush there because this is certainly not saying that everyone is in this situation. Nor is Paul saying that God simply wipes all the bad away. In fact, Romans began by establishing at great length universal guilt. Jews, Gentiles, Everyone. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Everyone has sinned and everyone is guilty. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is there anyone to condemn? Oh, yeah. Is there anyone to testify of our condemnation? Oh, yeah. I'll just put it in really personal terms. Who could bring a charge against me? Who could say, yeah, I can testify. Ryan Kelly is a sinner. Oh, my wife would be one. I've sinned against her more than any other human being on the planet, I suppose. That's terrifying to me. She could tell you. She's witnessed me lose my temper and pout and be self-focused and self-promoting, prideful anxious, slow to take correction, slow to want to forgive. My kids could tell you a thing or two about their dad being a sinner. They've seen it. They've even experienced it. My coworkers and fellow pastors could testify one by one that Ryan Kelly is no innocent man. The testimonies and evidence is insurmountable. It is innumerable. And so the end of Romans 8 isn't sweeping my guilt under a rug or looking the other way. 
the basis for Paul's implied no answer to these great questions is God's saving work in Christ. Consider God's saving work in Christ. So verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Implied? No one. But how? How do we know it? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Implied answer, he will. We should almost sing that right now after that song we just sang. He will. <laughs> this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God didn't spare his son of death and spare him from the cross, but instead gave him over to the cross for us, how will he not give us everything else that comes with salvation? He's not promising that we get everything we want or everything we think we need, but he does promise to give us the whole salvation package from beginning to end. Every Christian gets all the privileges, all the promises, all the inheritance, all the relationship. Every salvation is a, is a gold package. It's, there's, no, there's no basic plan with God where you only get 50 channels or so. No, you get the whole thing, and every Christian does. Ephesians 1 says he has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And how do we know that? Well, because God's word tells us, yes, but just look back to Gethsemane. When Christ prayed with such grief that he bled, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And there were crickets no answer. Or we could listen to the cries from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, crickets. Not forever. Sunday's coming. But on Friday, there were crickets. For us. For us. That was for all who would ever come to believe in Jesus and be saved. And so if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, then get this, God is for you. He's not against you. And everything in your life is for you and for your salvation. And nothing is going against it. Nothing is running contrary to your salvation. There's nothing swimming upstream of God's mighty river of your salvation it feels like it i know but nothing nothing so who can bring a charge against god's elect verse 33 no one why it is god who justifies to justify or justification the noun is god declaring someone righteous again it's courtroom language God makes a judicial declaration. The verdict on this one, not only not guilty, but righteous. Not because they are righteous in and of themselves. None are righteous, no, not one. But because Christ was righteous. 
He was righteous on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us or bore sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in Christ. We receive that righteousness as a gift through faith. So if we believe, if you believe, the verdict is already in and God's verdict is already in on your soul. You might say, well, what about, what about the charges of yesterday? What about the charges on my account that no doubt will accrue tomorrow or the next day? And the court of heaven says, what charges? Those charges were nailed to the cross when Jesus died, if you're a Christian. And court is no longer in session for you. We're not hearing any charges, even though they keep coming. They do keep coming. We're told in Scripture that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation 12, we're told that he accuses them before our God day and night. Ooh, that sounds pretty serious. Satan accusing us before God nonstop. Well, if you're worried about that, then sing these words of, the, of an old hymn. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Amen. Even Satan's charges and accusations are, I was going to say, a fart in the wind. But it's a good thing I didn't say it. Notice verse 34, who is to condemn? No one. How do we know? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Not only died, more than that, he was raised. There's Easter. Who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. We have this great multi-layered comfort. Let's just put it into two categories. On the one hand, our salvation was a one and done kind of thing. It was a once for all event in one weekend, a Friday in a Sunday, death in resurrection, there's your salvation. It's in the past. It's settled. It's done. Look back. See, he said, it is finished. Be comforted with that. On the other hand, our salvation is ongoing. Christ's saving work is ongoing. He's at the right hand of God now, not twiddling his thumbs, not watching Netflix. He's interceding for us. And Hebrews 7 tells us that he lives to intercede for us. Amazing. What great comfort in the constancy of his ongoing saving work. So where does our hope lie? Well, clearly not in ourselves, not in what we do, not in what we've done. I have no charges on my account because Christ paid for my charges. There's no one to condemn me because, well, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you in? That's the question. You see, this isn't true of everyone. Paul's writing to Christians, and he's giving them Christian truth. But this isn't true of everyone. It's probably not true of everyone here. You should know whether it's true of you or not. 
It's either true of you or it's not. It's not kind of true or mostly true. This is unlike the guy in The Princess Bride who was mostly dead. No one is mostly justified or has God mostly on their side. So what is it with you? How do these questions read to you if you can't, in confidence, supply Paul's assumed answer of no? No condemnation, no charges, no accusations. Instead, these questions, they should haunt you. In love, I say that they should haunt you. Who is against you? Just God and anyone else who's against you. Who can bring a charge against you? Anybody, everybody, and God too. Who is there to condemn? Well, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but, but outside of Christ Jesus, you're under condemnation. So flee to him, come under him. To be in Christ Jesus is to receive him in faith. And we pray for your soul's sake that today you would do that. Christian, if you're, if you're saved, that's a redundancy, Christian, if you're saved, but plenty of people call themselves Christians, it's not the real deal. If you're a Christian, lean into these questions, lean into this solid logic, lean in and let it sink in and sink in deep. Put away that guilt that God has put away as if you're more holy than he is and need to bear the guilt some more. No, put it away for good. Leave it at the cross where it already is. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Secondly, and more quickly now because we've already established the groundwork for this, we have a question about hardships in the rest of the passage. So here we should consider God's inseparable love in Christ. There are a string of different kinds of hardships mentioned in verses 35 to 39. And we should all know, maybe from experience, certainly if you've seen it in others, that sometimes life's hardships, when they get real hard, they can raise a question in our minds about God's love. Is he still loving under these circumstances for this long? When it goes from bad to worse, does he really love me? Or maybe those questions don't come to mind, but you just don't feel God's love whatsoever. Well, entertain this question. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Implied answer, no one. Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Well, it's getting more serious. Tribulation and distress were more of the common stuff, of frustrations of life and pains and sicknesses. Persecution, that can get severe. How about famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Paul quotes a bit from Psalm 44 here. That line is in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
I think Paul quotes from Psalm 44, which was a a prayer and a cry for help to God to remind his readers that God's people have often been severely persecuted, whether unto death, whether with physical punishment, or sometimes just maligned. God's people have often been the kind that are just like lambs left to the slaughter in this world, or so it would seem. I think he also quotes from Psalm 44 because it ends with this great cry for help. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And I assume that the Apostle Paul thinks that that cry for help has now been answered fully in Christ in what he has done. It's in light of that that Paul can say in verse 37, in all these things, pains, persecution, sword, whatever. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that doesn't say that we conquer out of our problems, but it's talking about conquering even within them. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. God hasn't here promised that he would remove all of your burdens and worries and sorrows and trials No, he may not. But in Christ Jesus and through his love, there is a conquering, or maybe it just feels like persevering. But that's enough. Romans 8, 28, earlier, Paul said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for their spiritual good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Whether it's discipline or trials, we know from Scripture they come not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. He's changing us. He's working for our good. Romans 5 discussed this. Suffering and trial, difficult, yes, but but they produce endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that's how we're saved. The different outlook on suffering altogether. Not that it goes away, but God's love is bigger than it. So nothing, no one, no circumstances can or does separate us from God's love if we're in Christ. And so Paul just, by verse 38, he's done with the questions. He's just going to put it as plainly and directly as he can. I am sure that neither death nor life, see the extremes, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. He's just spanning in different directions to to show that this is all-encompassing. And in case you missed that, he just says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. It's not only that his love is steady or reliable or consistent and unchanging. You should know, too, it's not reluctant. It's not half-hearted. It's not, it's not part of his has to. Why do you love Aunt fill-in-the-blank? Why do you love her? Well, she's family. 
She gets us some nice socks at Christmas. I'm supposed to be nice to her. We, we know a kind of love that is somewhat out of obligation. And sometimes we think that God loves that way, and he doesn't. He doesn't love reluctantly or stingily or half-heartedly or in some sterile way. He loves and loves and loves. And not even you can break from his love if he has truly saved you. Not even your sin will do you in if he has savingly set his love on you. His love is that strong. Frederick Lehman began writing a hymn on God's love in 1868, and he finished it in 1917, almost 50 years later. The end result was this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Can you picture it? And were the skies of parchment made? And were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure in the saints' and angels' song. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you don't know about this great love, you're contemplating perhaps, do I, win out? Do I want in on this? Well, let me tell you, the Christian life isn't all, you know, ponies and and popsicles and ease and fun it's hard you'll have to do some things you didn't used to do you'll have to give up some things that you used to really like to do just part of following Jesus and going his way but you get in by grace you get in only by grace it's only because of his love you may have seen signs at sporting events, John 3, 16. I wonder if everyone in this room has actually ever read it. It's this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave him to the cross, gave him for our salvation, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So we bid you to believe on him today and then to know these grand realities, no condemnation. Not just for now, forever. Clean slate, forever. Acceptance with him, gone. Guilty conscience, no need for that anymore. Love that doesn't go away. Love that is unalterable. Love that, that flows like Niagara Falls full, full flows, not like a, a garden hose that's on barely on and trickles out like you might think God's love comes to you. Believe, be saved. And Christian, if you're here and weary, despite the fact that it's Easter, 
despite the fact that you've got some maybe nice clothes on or plans for food this afternoon, you might be here with a heavy heart. Heavy heart because of the weariness of life or lack of sense of God's love. Don't you dare doubt God's love today. Not with Romans 8 in your pocket. Walk yourself through those questions whenever you need to. When you don't feel loved, when you don't think he loves, you walk yourself through those questions. When you think that he is keeping track with the the bad column and the good column, and uh, uh, uh. you remember no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray that God would help us to believe this more and live in light of it. Yes, Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the cross and for the resurrection. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only rose, but you also now reign and reign from heaven and intercede on our behalf. What a privilege. We don't even understand it, but we stand in awe of it. And we do pray that others with us today would come to understand it more and more, perhaps even for the first time. Help us to stand in awe of your great love as we sing of it now. In Jesus' name. Amen.